Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. Time of Thanksgiving and Christmas, families get together. Um, sometimes the uh, family photo album books come out. Everybody recalls different things that have happened in the family. And a lot of memories come rushing back. Our minds are amazingly good at remembering things in the past, especially when they are sparked by a picture or a story that is told. Again, our minds go rushing, and our minds can even create images, pictures, and even maybe videos in our minds. Our minds can do that with all kinds of things. So if I talked about a snowy day in December, can you picture a snowy day in December? You see the snow falling? Our minds can create that. Think about uh, family around Christmas time gathered together. You picture that in your head? You picture a, a grandpa in his chair, all nice and relaxed. How about if I said the word college student? There would be another image, right? You immediately begin to picture what this person might look like and what they might be doing. So let's do that now with the word God. What images begin to be projected in your mind when I say that word? What videos are started? We all have an understanding of God, and we're not trying to make idols when we do that, but it's very natural for our minds to form images of different ideas like God. Probably one of the least common projections of the minds of understanding God would be happiness, joy. Probably a lot of people tend to think of God more like a stoic, you know, just kind of existing, seeing things in the world, not really too up, not too down, but just kind of seeing the world and kind of going through the ways of the world, you know, dealing with the world as it is. Some people might see God as when he gets upset quite a bit or even grumpy, very angry what he sees going on in the world. He's just always ready to fly off the handle. But happy is not a word that is most often used of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says that God is the only blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the only blessed. The word blessed in the Beatitudes can also mean happy. Blessed are those who do these things. Happy are you if you do these things. Blessed and happy went together in the Bible. And we naturally think that way as well. If you know that you are blessed, you are joyful. So to be blessed means to be joyful. In this series on affections that we're doing, we're looking at these affections that we ought to have. The Bible tells us we should have. And last time we started looking at why these affections are so important. We looked at last time in some sense that that God made us to be this way. We were created to have these affections 
And we were created to be happy and joyful in God and to love Him with our entire being. But sin has come. And sin has displaced us from God, displaced us from true happiness. So now we search and we use false counterfeits. And Jesus died so we could be restored back to God and have our joy restored in Him. So why is there joy in God? Because God Himself is happy. He is joyful. He is always the blessed one. He never is not blessed. He always is. He's the only sovereign. This is His world. I want us to be careful here as we think about affections because I'm trying to be careful here that you don't feel pressure or feel like there's a a law being given to you about affections. That now you must go out as a Christian and you must work hard to manufacture these affections. There is no command here today in some sense. There is no law But when you know Christ, the Son of God, you've been saved by His death and resurrection, you belong to God, God graces you with joy. This is why the gospel must be central, because as we looked at two weeks ago, the gospel is good news. Jesus has done the saving work so that we might have joy. Gospel meaning good news. Though we may have thought that the gospel is strictly about avoiding hell and going to heaven... We know it's about our eternal happiness because God is eternally happy, always happy. And God is at work to turn us away from puny, energy-draining, money-draining, foolish pursuits of happiness. That's just their name for sin. Jesus Christ has come to make us deep down, soul deep, happy. They want to give us three more reasons in the Bible why affections are so crucial for us as Christians. And again, I want you to see this from the Bible. I don't want you to think that I'm making this up to maybe, maybe have a good sermon. This is from the Bible, grounded in the Word of God. Let me remind you again quickly about what we're talking about when we say affections. Affections refer to the inner movement of the soul. There is a stirring, there is an exciting of desires. We call this an inward sensation. We have outward sensations where uh, we sense things, their reality to us. But this is of the soul. It includes emotions, but much more than emotions because it is based on knowledge. And so God wants you to have your soul stirred appropriately by truth and by Him. And this is how He has made things to be. This is the natural order. So let me give you three more reasons today. First one today is Because this provides the power and ability to do what God wants from us. It provides the power and the ability to do what God has required of us. So last time we looked at three aspects of who we are as human beings. There's an intellectual part to us. That's that knowledge component. Then we also have these affections. 
again, including emotions. Thirdly, we have the will, where we do our choosing. And all three of these are going to have a certain kind of influence in what we do in our actions. Before I go right in the Scriptures, I want, you to give, I want to give you an analogy to kind of help us understand with this, okay? So, here we go. You decide one day that it's time to be physically healthy. It is time to get healthy, okay? So, first of all, you've got to have the knowledge of what that entails, okay? So that means you're going to have to change your diet, and you know it. Fruits and vegetables, that means leave out the butter and the grease, y'all. Yes, healthy vegetables. You guys cheat all the time. I'm eating my vegetables. Yeah, give me a break. Fruit and good vegetables, grains, all these types of things that you know you should be eating. And then you also know you need to exercise three, four, five times a week. And you have to be committed on a continual basis to do this. And these are things that hopefully you know that you should do. So we have that knowledge, right? Should we do a little interview and see how everybody's doing with that? How is that knowledge leading you to the actions so that you'll be healthy? Or do you defy that knowledge routinely? That's a tough sermon here before Thanksgiving, isn't it? It was a bad analogy. So that's the knowledge component. But we also know that if we're going to be healthy, we have to make those choices. That will has to be moved. we got to have that power of the will. So we make goals, resolutions. We are going to schedule in our diet, our eating, and our exercising. We're going to make sure that we go to the gym. We're going to make ourselves, even on a cold day, get to the gym. We might even ask people to be our accountability partners, say, how am I doing? We may even buy smaller clothes to kind of constrain us so that we will do this thing. Uh, how does that work for most people? Willpower just seems to lack. Now, sometimes knowledge has a lot of power, and sometimes there can be strong wills. But you all know most of the time that is not enough. Our spouse catches us in the kitchen eating cookies and pie and say, what are you doing? I thought you were on a diet. Didn't you tell me that this is what you wanted to do? Don't you know any better? Well, yeah, I do know better. In fact, I can't choose better. I know it and I want to choose it, but I want this cookie. The problem is what? You do not love what you are doing. You do not love eating healthy. You do not love to exercise. It is not a part of your affections. More knowledge and more willpower without the affections leaves you frustrated and defeated and you surrender and you just give in to your desires. Because your desires want to be fulfilled with everything that you want. So there's a problem here, right? And the problem is the affections. You can know and you can try and have great willpower, but unless you love what you're doing, 
you will cave. Same thing spiritually. We can know truth. We can know right from wrong. We can know righteousness. But sometimes it is not appealing to us. There's no affection for wanting to tell the truth. There's no affection to be pleasing to God by telling the truth. And that knowledge falls flat. The will is never activated to motion because the love is not there for that. We can hear the commands of Scripture. Do not covet. Don't be covetous. Don't be greedy. But then we see something we want really bad. And we know the truth. We want to have the willpower, but we end up giving in to temptation because there's not the affectionate commitment to the Lord and to what is right and beautiful to Him. Yes, we do know better, but we don't want better. You tell your spouse, right? The cookie. Don't you know any better? Yes, of course I know better, but I don't want better. This is where rubber meets the road. Let's look at some scriptures here. I wish I could give you a ton, but I can't because it's the sake of time. We'll just start with a scripture I just read a few minutes ago, Nehemiah chapter 8. If Ezra reading the law, others helping to explain the law, you have this big crowd here listening to the word of God and it being explained, interpreted, so they know exactly what it means for them. And their response is to weep. And they are overwhelmingly weeping. And so these leaders have to say, stop, no more weeping. There, there is a place for weeping, but this is a day to remember God's grace and mercy. Okay? There is a place for repentance and you're showing that, but now this is a holy day. This is a day of rejoicing because he's had mercy on us. He's brought us back from exile. We're back in the land, and God is going to do something in us. And so what you need to know, people, is, Nehemiah 8, verse 10, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Knowing the law is not your strength. Now, it's a part of the joy. We're not taking away knowledge at all, but only knowledge, is that going to be your strength? Just coming here and taking theology classes and learning Greek and Hebrew, is that going to get you through not coveting anymore, not lying anymore? No. Willpower will not be your strength because you don't have the willpower. We've all demonstrated that over and over again, haven't we? We do not have the willpower. But the joy in Him will be your strength to press on as you now want to follow God's law. Joy is very, very powerful, isn't it? And when you have that joy welling up inside of you over something or someone, actions are produced. When you have great joy in somebody else, those natural actions that follow joy just seem to flow. That's why there's no law. There's no pressure here. You know God. He is your joy. <laughs> that thing you want so bad doesn't look so good anymore. It doesn't have its appeal anymore. It doesn't seem that great anymore because the joy of the Lord now is my strength. God, give us more joy. Give us more knowledge, but give us more joy in that knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13 
Brother Norm hit this passage last week, did a good job with it. There's so many things here in this passage, but verse 7 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We talk about pickups, we talk about payload. That's a big payload. That's a big workload. Sometimes it's really hard to bear all the burdens and problems and imperfections of somebody else. And here, if we have love, we will bear up. We will believe, we will hope, we will endure all that. And so what is enabling us to do this? Is it knowledge? It's love. Love in our hearts. That comes out being able to bear up under others, but it's love inside the heart that is there. That's the strength. Matthew 5, verse 12, Jesus says, when you're being persecuted, rejoice and be glad because you have a huge, big reward in heaven. So why is Jesus telling them rejoice and be glad when like in today's world, there are Christians whose dads are being taken away from families, whose dads are being killed in front of their families, why can you rejoice and be glad? Why should you? Why is Jesus saying all this? Because Jesus knows this is fuel to keep pressing on through the persecution. Now, unless you're a Christian and know the Word of God, you say, John, you are talking nonsense. <laughs> Did you just hear what you said, John? Families being divided, jobs being taken away, and the fuel is rejoicing and being glad? Yes, it is is being so glad in Jesus for all that he has done for you and all that he is for you, that you have so much joy overwhelming that you can face your persecutors with joy. And Jesus says you can't make it to that persecution unless you're rejoicing and being glad. 2 Corinthians 8.2, one more. Paul's writing the, the Corinthians here to, hoping that they will join in this offering that he's taking up to help the saints in Jerusalem. They're going through a severe time of famine. They're struggling. Their big hurricane has hit, and they've been decimated, so they need help. And Paul brings up the Macedonians. This is going to be the churches of Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, and those. And Paul refers to them and tells these people in Corinth what they were doing up in Macedonia. He says, In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So the saints in Jerusalem, they're being decimated, right? The people in Macedonia are poor people. They've got their own afflictions going on, and out of the abundance of their joy, they start help giving money to help the saints somewhere else. Well, we all know that the only time you give money is when you have a surplus, right? Go ask your financial advisor. When you've got enough surplus and you've taken care of all of your wants and your needs, then whatever's left over, cut it off and see if you can find someone else to give it. Anti-gospel, anti-Jesus. Turn away from it, run from it. Cancel that financial advisor, get away from him. He has nothing to do with the gospel. This tells us the gospel here. When your own severe test of affliction you give generously out of joy because joy is causing you to do this. Again, sin is trying to make yourself happy in your own way. 
by sinning, you believe you can make yourself happier than God can by obeying him. You're going to go your own way, choose your own sin, because you believe there's more joy in that sin than God can give you in obedience. We need truth. We need revelation from God. We need this. Pour yourselves in the Word of God. Listen to sermons. Get teaching. Because otherwise, you'll just, again, be affected by your emotions, and you won't have your affections set right. The Scriptures ensure, by God's grace, that we're actually having the right affections, and we're not just having emotions exploding. I'm very concerned about this, these sermons because I don't want you just to think in emotional terms. I think of that, I think of fireworks on July 1st in a warehouse. A fire gets lit and it explodes. This sometimes happens, right? Mass destruction. Sometimes people get hurt or killed and um, it's not very nice. But on July 4th, when those fireworks are purposefully laid out and lit in the right way and maybe have music put to them, a patriotic song, that's beautiful, isn't it? July 4th is affections. July 1st is just emotions. Faith, hope, and love. These are things that Paul talks about routinely because they make the will vibrate. We need our wills to vibrate. We need our wills to act so we actually end up doing the actions. But that will stands still unless the affections are motivating the will to say, yes, go to Christ, go to righteousness, turn away from sin. John Edwards said this, take away all love and hatred, all hope and fear, all anger, zeal, and affectionate desire, and the world would be in a great measure motionless and dead. Isn't that true? This world is run by affections. People run to and fro. People want to have things. People want to achieve things because it's their loves. It's their desires that are coming out. And this is what's causing all the energy in the world People are provoked and stimulated by things that they want. Just go shopping here in a few weeks and you'll see it. Affections lit up to the max because they want. And you will move. You will do the actions that God wants you to do if you have these affections. You'll choose the right things. Yes, every day you've got to do things you don't want to do. <laughs> You've got to do your duty sometimes, right? You've just got to make yourself do it. But then there's times that you get to do what you want to do. Now I can think about is Fred Flintstone after work. Woohoo! He's off this job. Now I get to do what I want to do. We follow our affections. We follow our affections. Jonathan Edwards said, He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection is never engaged in the business of religion. You just go based on your knowledge, 
You're just acting on your knowledge. You got no affection. John Edward said, you're not involved in anything related to Jesus. It's the heart. Next reason why affections matter. Because the Bible, many different places, talks about the manner of how we do these actions. The manner is so important of the actions we do as Christians. And that manner, many times, is related to affections. So back in 1996 or so, in Chicago, in a big room in a seminary, I heard a professor read these verses. Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. It says this, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness, and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in anger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Deuteronomy 28, 47, Deuteronomy. So God says here, I'm going to take you into exile, and I'm going to destroy you. Well, why? A lot of times, in like Jeremiah passages, it does talk about how they're worshiping Baal or idols, but it's not here. What's the reason here? The Lord says, because you didn't serve me with joyfulness. You did not serve me with gladness of heart. Does that hit you a little bit? (laughs) Because here the Lord's not saying, you didn't serve me. You did serve me. But the problem is you had no joy, no gladness in your hearts. And because of that, I'm ripping you out of the land. I'm going to bring warriors into the land, and they're going to bring destruction. They're going to kill your family members. They're going to make you into famine. You're going to be thirsty. There's going to be disease because you did not serve me with joy. God's not just looking for a nation to serve Him and worship Him. He's not just looking for a servant. He's not just looking for robotic soldiers that can get the job done. God, throughout the Bible, repeatedly emphasizes it's the way of knowing Him. It's the way of serving Him. And we see this over and over again. It's the manner. It's the way. It's the style. Think about sports. Sometimes you watch um, a different sport on TV and you get to know some of the players and you find out that there's some players who really love playing the game. They're not just in it for the paycheck and we know who they are. They're not just in it for the fame and the glory. We know who they are. But there's some that just love the game and it comes out. And this is what God is looking for. Not just those who can do the right actions, but those who do the actions as God has actually commanded. Listen to these different words that are used in the Bible. I'm going to give you a list of words. So either got to write really fast if you're taking notes or you're just going to have to make peace with this. I don't know. Here we go. Cheerful is how we do things as Christians. Cheerful or cheerfulness. Joyful. Grateful. Thankful. Merciful. Earnestly genuinely, 
or you do it with your whole heart or all your heart, or it's a matter of seeking and desiring and pursuing and hungering and thirsting. All these things, again, are related to our heart and our affections. Let me give you some scriptures quick. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul writes, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. You hear that? That's the negative side, right? Don't do it this way. For God loves a cheerful giver. God does not just love givers. God just doesn't love people who give their money away. Because in your heart, you can feel like you're compelled to because you're in a crowd, other people are putting money in the plate. Well, by golly, I better do it too, otherwise I'll look bad. Compulsion. Compulsion, don't do that. Because God loves cheerful givers. Romans 12, verse 8, talks about the one who leads. If they're a leader, they got some kind of leadership position, they should lead with zeal. Don't be just kind of floundering, no excitement, no passion. No. Have zeal in your heart to want to do your very best. This is so important to you. So if you're in any position in this church, you should be doing it with zeal. You should not be lukewarm and apathetic about doing your job. It also talks there about one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. You help somebody out, do it with a cheerful disposition. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, there's a key word, sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I'm going to have to skip a little bit faster here. In concluding this point, let me take you to one more passage quickly. And this is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Very familiar passage. This is where you have this great king, and you have a servant who's become indebted to the king and has such an overwhelmingly amount of money, there's no way he can do it. So the king is going to put him in prison. And the guy says, please have mercy on me. Please, this will just ruin my life. And the king says, okay, I'll have mercy. Then this guy goes out and finds another servant who owes him just a small pittance of money. He can't pay him, so he wants to have him put in jail for not paying him. So the king finds out about this and says, hey, didn't I forgive you all this and have mercy on you? But now you've got this little amount and you want exact punishment on him? The king says, take him away and put him in jail until the very last penny is paid. And Jesus says here in verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I'm guessing that sometimes, perhaps most of the time, our forgiveness does not meet that standard. Oh, I've forgiven them. I don't really don't hold anything against them. I'm doing just fine. But as far as the warmth, tenderheartedness, and compassion, non-existent. And Jesus says, if you don't do that from your heart, 
you have not forgiven. You may say you have. You may think you have. You may act like you have, but you have not done it. What you've done is you've just brought about some cold, distant contract with somebody. That's not from your heart. And because that, many people have relationships that are not tied up by proper forgiveness. They are still open. They've not been closed up properly. And there's still hurts and wounds because it's never come from the heart. This is rare. This is rare. But this is the standard. And Jesus never takes away the standard. He never takes it away. Third and lastly, affections are many times sufficient in themselves. This is our last reason for why affections are so important. Because many times in the Bible, God commands affections, and that is the action that God wants. There is no bodily action. Again, I want to be careful here because God does command and does want actions. That's very, very clear in the Scriptures. Our bodies must actually move in kindness and generosity and for justice to help people in need. But included in these works that we are to do, like it says in Ephesians 2.10, you're saved from eternity past for good works. Those good works we are saved for are not just the outer works, but they are the inner works of the heart. God commands us to do inner works of the heart. So our hearts are right with Him. They may or may not end up in bodily actions, but those inner workings of the heart is what God requires. You ever watch somebody get angry before? I mean, real angry. You could watch them. You can watch their face. They're different. You'll see what they're doing, and you can just see the anger rise up inside of them. They may not move one finger. Their lip may not even move. They may not even blink an eye. But there's a work going on inside of them, and it is anger. And there's all kinds of works that go on inside of us. And we call those, to some degree, affections. Anger is an affection. Okay? These are things that God wants to have us to be right in us as we serve Him. What this means, first of all, is that this is, a lot of times, true Christianity. This is true Christianity because the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 is that we will have a new heart. A new heart is one that feels and wants and desires what God wants. And sometimes those desires in of themselves are worship and pleasing to God. And they mark us as true Christians. So Psalm 37 verse 4 gives us the command to delight ourselves in the Lord. To have delight. Now, may that result in singing? May that result in some other action that we do? Maybe. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're singing songs and you have great delight in your heart to the Lord, worship. Your lips may not even move, but it's the fact that in your heart where God sees, He sees delight in Him. He's like, perfect. Love it. Psalm 42 and 43 say at different times to hope in God. It's a command to hope in God. Does hope 
result in action sometimes? Yes. But again, if you're here this morning and you're singing these songs and you come in in a place where you don't have much hope, but all of a sudden now you sing these songs, you hear the sermon, you go, man, I've got hope again. And my hope is in God. I've taken my hope away from being in my spouse or in my job or my health, and now I've got it in the Lord. And the Lord says, I see that. I see that hope on your gauge in your heart, how it's rising, and that pleases me. In Romans 12, there's all different kinds of commands in Romans 12 that can't take time. It talks about one thing in verse 9 about abhorring what is evil. Again, you can be sitting in your chair at home watching the news and all of a sudden evil is presented to you. And in your heart you abhor evil. That is pleasing to God. That marks you out as a true believer. When you're being presented a temptation on the internet or by somebody else, you say no to that because you're abhorring the evil that is pleasing to God. The fact that you're building up your abhorrence of evil is pleasing to God in and of itself. Right there. Lastly, as part of this, our affections have God as their end. Many times, God as their end. So again, Psalm 37, verse 4, delight ourselves in the Lord. He give the desires of our heart. Or Psalm 43, verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. God is my exceeding joy. This pleases Him. He's the end of it. He's not necessarily looking for actions right now. He is just my joy and this pleases Him. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Picture with me, husband and wife, they're having a meal together at a restaurant. There's no exchange of jewelry. There's no flowers. There's nothing else. Between them, they are just having joy in one another. There's no outside gifts, nothing like that. They're just having joy in one another. And a lot of that joy is stemming from they know that they are causing joy in the other person, and it's reciprocal. It's a mutual joy in each other that's being back and forth. And when God looks at us and sees that joy in him, God says, I'm causing that. And I delight in that because I'm the source of it. It's no longer what you can buy at Christmas or what your spouse can give you because he's not or she's not giving it to you. It doesn't matter anymore because God is creating that joy in you and he is pleased with what he is doing in you. And that's worship. You don't even need a room or instruments or electricity. Just right there in your bed and your home, right there, God is pleased. As I finish here, I just want to reference one more time Jonathan Edwards. In his book on religious affections, he talks about true and false affections. I think this is very important, especially for our day and age. First of all, he talks about the hypocrite. I'm kind of summarizing it here for you. 
The hypocrite is one who, when they hear about God's love for them, they are enamored with how much God loves them. But it's twisted. It becomes very self-oriented. God himself is not the joy and delight, but all they're doing is basking in God's love for them. They love, oh, God makes so much of me. I just love how he makes so much of me. And they twist this wonderful thing of God's love because the, the foundation of that joy in God's love is self. God makes much of me. Look at how much he raises me up. And there's a danger today in Christianity and our churches of this. We're so wanting to make sure that people know that God loves them. And yet if they take it in such a way and they twist it and make them the center of it, they lose God himself in that. Because God is to be the center of even of his love that he gives to us. So the true believer, in Jonathan's words, says this. They do not see first that God loves them and then that God is lovely. No, but they first see that God is lovely and that Christ is excellent and glorious and their hearts are captivated by this view. For the true believer, yes, there is a basking in God's love, but that's point two. And that's subordinate to point one. Point one is that God has given himself to you. He opens himself to you and he becomes your chief joy and delight so that he is the focus even of when you understand his love for you. The difference between a hypocrite who talks about God's love all the time, but they've twisted it, and a true believer whose true joy is in God himself and none of his benefits. It's in God himself. Let's pray. Lord, we do need to quiet our hearts. Our hearts are so very loud. And then you throw the world into the mix. And there's so much commotion in our hearts that many times we cannot even hear our own hearts. Uh, yes, we think we do sometimes, but not the full depths of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you help us as we think about where we're at with you. Lord, that you are the end of all things. Every road, every path is to end with you. Our love, our joy, our hope, our fear has to end in you. And you know we are prone to wander, Lord. We are prone to go our own way. Lord, I pray for all of us that we know the taste of sin and how it's repugnant to us. We abhor it. And that bitter taste, by your grace now, is producing sweet tastes of Christ. I pray that we can taste of Christ. And we want to keep on over and over and over again that you might keep us to the very end. Lord, you know the true status of our hearts 
You know where they need to be mended and fixed and repaired and turned. And we ask that you would do that. Lord, only you can do that kind of work in our hearts. We are subject to you for this work. Do in every single heart, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.